Welcome to Parle the Hindu's weekly discussion podcast. I'm Stanley Johnny, your host for this episode. The 11th day fighting between Hamas and Israel coupled with protests across the Palestinian territories as well as Israeli cities have turned the spotlight once again on the Palestinian question. We know that at least since the 1990s the internationally accepted recognized solution to this crisis is the so-called two-state solution which means independent sovereign Palestine state and an independent sovereign Israel state to coexist side by side in peace but on the ground since the Oslo accords were signed there has been little progress on the two-state solution on the contrary Israel has tightened its occupation over the years with an expansion of its settlement projects and more checkpoints in the west bank blockade on gaza etc etc so this continuing occupation and the palestinian resistance have often led to violence and israeli bombings on repeated bombings on gaza and hamas firing rockets into israel from the gaza strip today we have two distinguished panelists uh, to discuss this topic one is nathan tral who's joining us from jerusalem nathan is the author of the only language they understand forcing compromise in israel and palestine a critically acclaimed book on the subject he's also a contributor to the new york times magazine london review of books new york review of books etc etc professor ramakrishnan who teaches international studies in jawaharlal nehru university new delhi he was a, a former visiting professor at bucknell university in pennsylvania professor ramakrishnan has written extensively on west asia i welcome you both we are glad to have you for parley thank you stanley thank you for having us nathan to start the discussion how i, I just want to pose this question to you how do you look at the most recent crisis between the palestinians and the israelis i mean it's not just the israeli bombing of gaza or hamas firing rockets it's, i mean it appears to be that it, it's more than that because you saw uh, protests across the palestinian territories which which was not the case when israel went to gaza israel bombed gaza in 2014 or or prior to that because you saw protests in in from from gaza to the west bank cities and in between in israeli cities as well so it is let's say that you saw unprecedented protests in the land between the river and the sea so how do you look at the current crisis well thank you uh first of all for having me and and second um you know i i think you're right to point out that this uh really did feel rather different uh from the escalations that we've um uh, seen in gaza in 2014 2012 and 2008 2009 Palestinian citizens of Israel protested in large numbers and we see that they're being arrested in very large numbers uh today and and that is something that has occurred in the past it occurred during the first intifada it was a uh enormously important moment uh at the beginning of the second intifada uh when what Israel calls the October uh events took place and 13 Palestinian citizens of Israel uh were killed in in protests in the in the first uh days of the second intifada so there is a precedent uh for this 
but uh, it did feel uh, much different than than the escalations of the last um, uh, decade or so, and um, and and really what what it did for the world and for much of the Israeli public was to to send a very clear message, which is uh, after over seventy years of uh, Israeli policy, which is uh, to fragment the Palestinian people and to uh, treat them uh, differently, uh, subject them to different rules and restrictions, never equal to Jews in uh, various uh, places where they live, whether uh, inside pre-67 Israel or Jerusalem or the West Bank or Gaza or in the uh, diaspora from which they're they're not allowed to return. Um, After 70 years of that policy, uh, the Palestinian citizens of Israel and the Palestinian people at large sent a very strong message, which is uh, it hasn't succeeded. The Palestinian people are one. And, uh, and that message, I think, was quite shocking to most Israelis. And it's an enormous challenge to the existing paradigm of the international community, uh, which you mentioned earlier, the two-state solution. Because uh, to put it in, in perhaps a, a, a little bit too simplistic a, a, a form, but, but I don't think is very far from the truth, most of the world has treated the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as though it's more or less a dispute over the occupation of the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and Gaza. And, and the paradigm has been more or less that of a uh, border dispute. Um, we have, okay, the, the Palestinians don't have a state, but they have uh, this Palestinian authority and it's going to be a state. And they're more or less, um, you know, fighting over exactly where we're going to draw the line of separation. The Israelis want a bit more. The Palestinians uh, want a bit more for themselves. And, and we just have to draw a suitable line, agree on border adjustments, and, and we're done. And uh, when the Palestinian people come together and show that actually, you know, the Palestinians of the West Bank, Jerusalem, and Gaza are just one part of the Palestinian people. And, and this is a national struggle uh, of all the Palestinian people who are still united as one, then, then that paradigm starts to make a lot less sense. Um, because in essence, if, the, if this is a conflict between uh, Israeli Jews and the Palestinian people who are being dominated in various ways by uh, the state of Israel, Uh, then it doesn't make uh, much sense to propose a solution in which you say the dominating party, Israeli Jews, get to stay united in a single state, and the dominated party, we're going to uh, split uh, into pieces to continue the fragmentation as part of the solution, and we'll put part of them under minority status in the the, uh, state of Israel, and the uh, others we'll put in a a quasi-state, something that will be somewhere between autonomy and, you know, less than a state, as, as um, uh, Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin uh, referred to his uh, preferred outcome. A- and uh, that, that solution, first of all, should be rejected uh, just on uh, simple grounds of, of fairness and, and justice. Um, why should 
when the two parties under Israeli control today are both roughly equal in size, about 7 million Palestinians, about 7 million Israeli uh, Jews, why should one of them be split up in this way and not even really get a sovereign state uh, because the two-state solution would not truly create a Palestinian sovereign state? Um, and, and the other gets to stay uh, united. And then if you look even at the, at the division of the territory in a two-state solution, it would give 78% to Israeli Jews and 22%, a discontiguous uh, 22%, to uh, Palestinians. So on all of these grounds, the two-state solution really makes no sense if you conceive of the two parties to the conflict, as you should, being the Palestinian people not the Palestinians of the West Bank and Gaza, but the Palestinian people, and the other party being Israeli Jews. Uh, interesting. So in that sense, Professor Ramakrishnan, if you look at it from the Palestinian uh, point of view or from the point of view of the Palestinian people, or if, even if you look at that uh, you know, from a historical point of view, yeah, it's the two-state solution. We can argue that it, it doesn't make sense. But on the on the, on the practical side, what, what do you think? What could be? I mean, it's it's true that I agree with the the problems with the two state solution. But on the practical side, uh, what what is the way forward? How can we address this this problem? I agree with most of the points uh, Nathan Prawl has uh, raised. What is significant is to recognize that from 1967 onwards, the whole of uh, the Palestinian territories are under Israeli control. Israel proper and then the occupied Palestinian territories. And that is where the uh, political discussion on the Palestine question should change. The narrative has to change from two entities fighting against each other for particular land, etc., to the, the very uh, conception of uh, a, a colonial order uh, and, and the reality of the colonizer and the colonized. If that equation, that whole control over the historical Palestine by the state of Israel, if that is recognized, then one can think about, uh, you know, what kind of solution is possible. And that addressing that uh, aspect of uh, uh, resolving the conflict, uh, this recognition of the complete control of Israel is, is the first step. But that's precisely what is being resisted by uh, the Israeli government. And most of the peace processes that we have seen uh, from Camp David Accords uh, to the Oslo process, to the, the non-deal of the century by Trump, uh, what we have seen is uh, 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 a mechanism of a peace process for postponing uh, any kind of uh, you know, uh, permanent settlement of, of the issue. So uh, that's why there is a dead end to the, the peace process, because it's not um, uh, driving us anywhere towards any acceptable solution. The two-state solution, even though it's, uh, as uh, Stanley has initially pointed out, 
it has been the internationally accepted solution to the problem uh, from UNGA resolution 181 to resolution 242 to the assertion even in, um, in the Oslo codes of uh, resolution 242 and Security Council resolution 242 and 338 etc. Uh, those kinds of uh, uh, you know international legal uh, language and several states recognizing uh, the, the two-state solution. Uh, the initial difficulties that were pointed out, particularly by the Palestinians and those who, um, uh, you know, analyzed the situation, was the practical, uh, you know, impediments of uh, uh, the increasing illegal uh, Israeli settlements uh, in the occupied territories, East Jerusalem and in uh, the West Bank. And, uh, you know, the, the very question of uh, a contiguous territory for the Palestinians to establish uh, an independent state of their own is not available in, in, in a practical sense uh, because under Israeli occupation, there is uh, uh, the whole change in the in the geography of the Palestinian territories uh, over a, uh, over all these um, decades. So uh, the practical problems regarding the two-state solution exist there, and particularly what is the status of Jerusalem you know, what is going to be done, not only about the settlements, but again, uh, most important was the future of Palestinian refugees outside of the occupied territories and outside of historical Palestine uh, in Jordan, in um, Lebanon and elsewhere across the world. So these questions are, are uh, actually very important. And that's why the two-state solution was not working. And the two-state solution is also used uh, to, to postpone thinking about, um, you know, new radical ways of uh, thinking about people existing together, uh, the, the notion of, uh, uh, you know, democratic kind of uh, state. What's again important is, uh, uh, you know, uh, Nathan Troll has written about it, the, the, the nature of the apartheid, uh, you know, uh, political order, uh, both within the state of Israel and more importantly in the occupied territories in the West Bank, Gaza, and in East Jerusalem, uh, where you have the separation wall, you have uh, uh, two road, uh, kinds of roads for uh, the Israeli Jews on the one hand and the Palestinians on the other, the checkpoints. Um, and within Israel in uh, 2018, uh, under Netanyahu's leadership, you have seen an apartheid, uh, uh, you know, basic law uh, coming up, the nation state of the Jewish people, thereby legally undermining the citizenship of the Palestinian population within Israel. And therefore, throughout historical Palestine, uh, there is uh, this apartheid regime um, existing uh, 
as we stand today. And therefore, addressing a solution should look at all these kinds of contours of the Palestine question. And uh, for me, um, you know, the whole idea of uh, the um, Israeli Jewish people and, and the Palestinian people living together in a democratic uh, state, uh, that is still a, a uh, uh, kind of, which is treated as an utopia even now. But uh, what is important is to recognize uh, that the events, as we have seen uh, in the, uh, you know, in the current phase of uh, uh, the the conflict, uh, actually the events themselves leading to newer thinking. And therefore, when one thinks about a solution, one has to take into account the new narratives emerging out of newer kinds of struggles. And that's very important to recognize, I think. Yeah, that's right. Nathan, I'm just uh, taking the discussion forward from here. Is a one-state solution uh, utopia, you think, will the discussions, I mean, if you look at uh, uh, the Palestinian side and the Israeli side now, Fatah has accepted two-state solution. They did it long time ago. PLO recognized Israel. Hamas hasn't recognized Israel officially, but the 2017 charter Hamas has offered a Hudna, a long-term peace process based on the 1967 border. So the two dominant political factions uh, of the Palestinian side have, say, let's say, at least a de facto two states they have uh, accepted. One is uh, officially and the other is de facto recognition is there. But is there a discussion from among the Palestinian side, among the Palestinian resistance movements, that uh, the, the, the focus should shift from a two-state solution that is not working on the ground to a one-state solution where the apartheid system has to be brought down and everybody should enjoy equal rights in a larger state? Everything you said is right about the main political parties among the Palestinians supporting a two-state solution, um, uh, de facto, um, uh, in Hamas's case, without recognizing the state of Israel, but, but accepting that this is the consensus position among Palestinians and agreeing that they would abide by the Palestinian consensus. Um, now, it's important to note that the um, Palestinian support for a two-state solution um, does, does not derive from a vision of what would be uh, most just uh, or most desirable. Um, clearly, if you uh, look at the history of this place, you know, at the start of the Zionist movement, at the end of the 19th century, in the final decades of the 19th century, uh, the, the Jews in Palestine made up uh, about 3% of the uh, population in 1882 at the start of the Zionist movement, and Palestinians were the remaining 97%. Um, and what we've seen over time is the slow takeover of Palestine and the transformation of it, as uh, Jabotinsky uh, wrote, uh, into the land of Israel. Now, anybody who and every Palestinian uh, knows that and, and clearly um, any outcome that would give Palestinians a disconnected uh, state without true sovereignty in a mere 22 percent of that of their homeland Nobody looks at that as as just or you know 
comes up with that as a solution uh, on their own. And I will remind you that the two-state solution is based on Israel's occupation of the West Bank and Gaza in the in the 1967 war, but the Palestine Liberation Organization was founded before the 1967 war. The conflict Fatah was founded between before the 1967 war. The uh, project of uh, Palestinian liberation, the project of uh, Palestinian uh, return, refugee return, these all uh, precede the the 1967 war. So so the the roots of the Palestinian national movement are much deeper than any adherence to a two-state solution. The adherence to two-state solution came about very grudgingly. The international community twisted the arms of the Palestinian leadership for a very long time, which had refused to accept uh, a two-state solution, and finally did out of uh, purely out of out of pragmatism, not a sense that it was fair or or desirable. Um, and so, what what the position that we're in today is that. It took a lot of, uh, uh, as I said, a twisting of their arms, but also it took their own uh, rhetorical gymnastics in order to justify these concessions to their own people. And and now the position we're in today is it's clear to everyone that a two-state solution isn't happening. Even the two-state solution that is the quote-unquote more realistic version of it, where Palestinian state is demilitarized, where Palestinians have uh, tunnels that they go under so- sovereign Israeli territory in order to reach Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem, uh, where, th- where the most of the uh, settlers will be annexed to Israel, where their Gaza and, and uh, the West Bank are, are uh, disconnected from one another. This, this, you know, vision of the of the two state solution, which is the kind of that what I've just described is the most progressive version, the most far reaching. Uh, this is the proposal of the Geneva Initiative in um, uh, made made during the Second Intifada, um, and and even that version, uh, and even much worse versions like the Trump plan, none of those are happening. There's no two state solution happening. And, and everybody recognizes that this is the case. So the, the very difficult position that the Palestinian leadership finds itself in is they have undergone this slow and painful conversion. They've been rhetorically justifying their concession to reality, their acceptance of this solution for decades now. And now they're suddenly in a position where the entire public says it's not happening even this terrible compromise isn't realistic. So, um, so you began by asking me about what's utopic and what's realistic. And I think that the place that we're in today is to say that no solution is, is realistic. A two-state solution isn't realistic and a one-state solution isn't realistic. What's realistic given the balance of power, the huge disparity in power between uh, Israel and the Palestinians. Uh, what's realistic in in that case is continued domination without any Palestinian uh, sovereignty, and we can imagine that eruptions of violence will lead to different kinds of adjustments. And when things get really bad, Israel starts you know putting forward plans to 
you know, make tactical adjustments and withdraw from certain areas or encircle other areas by walls or readjust the route of the separation barrier uh, in the West Bank. Uh, But these are tactical uh, adjustments. It would take power that the Palestinians currently do not have in order to really bring about any solution, whether two states, one state, seven states. So, So the situation we're looking at now is one in which anything other than a continuation of what the human rights organizations, the leading Palestinian, Israeli, and international human rights organizations have all deemed meets the crime against the definition of the crime against humanity of apartheid, that situation is going to continue for the indefinite future. And uh, really any alternative to that is utopic. That's a pretty grim picture. Professor Ramakrishnan, so what does Israel want? Does it want to continue this system? Does it want to retain the status quo? Yeah, there is, uh, as Nathan pointed out, there is a clear imbalance of power between the Palestinians and the Israelis. And Israel doesn't really come under international pressure like other countries. So, but how long Israel would be able to continue this occupation on the Palestinian people? The Israeli government obviously wants to have uh, the not only the status quo of its uh, occupation and colonial policies continue, uh, you know, for as long as uh, it is possible. Uh, it it wants to expand uh, the kind of control and annex more territories that it occupies. And uh, 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 there is no end to that kind of a process. Uh, What is uh, actually preventing them from uh, the total decimation of uh, Palestinian life and their resistance uh, is, is, is the voices not only coming from the Palestinians within the occupied territory, but as we have seen in um, the, the current crisis, the voices of Palestinians from uh, within the state of Israel and uh, the kind of voices that we have seen on the streets uh, across the world, as uh, you have pointed out initially. Uh, the moral, legal uh, uh, argument, arguments for justice, etc., arguments against apartheid policies, those kinds of things uh, uh, are, are not something that, uh, that still is uh, a matter of great uh, consideration within the Israeli state apparatus. Uh, you know, what uh, in ancient Greece we have uh, that uh, million dialogue uh, in the history of Peloponnesian War by Thucydides, uh, where you could see the Athenians talking about, uh, you know, um, accepting, uh, you know, what the powerful says, and and that is uh, uh, the 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 moral view, power as uh, morality, that kind of thing. And uh, the, the billions were destroyed through that process in the in in ancient Greece. But what the Palestinians after seventy three years still could not be destroyed totally. 
and this is very important and therefore uh, the pressure that the israeli uh, population both jewish and arab population can uh, uh, you know uh, have on their government uh, to to change policies uh, you know the popular pressure on on the american uh, government uh, to to change their continued uh, strong support to the state of israel and international pressure to uh, you know have um, the power of uh, israel to to do what they do in uh, against the palestinians uh, that could be controlled by accepting certain policies and there are there are histories for that uh, whether uh, you know the uh, international community is ready to do that whether uh, uh, you know states uh, in the international community ready to accept this reality of uh, uh, you know day-to-day -day oppression of a set of people that's that's the most important question but within israel and within the united states the pressure is much more significant i think in order that the israeli states policies could be uh, changed through tremendous pressure yeah nathan one more question so in in your book you have uh, you, you have given you know examples of israel making compromises concessions in the past so but those concessions were actually israel was forced to make concessions or to put it di differently whenever israel came under pressure uh, eisenhower or or the soviets during the suez crisis or uh, president jimmy carter ahead of the camp david so either when israel came under international pressure or when the palestinians you know resorted to mass resistance uh, or violent resistance the israelis were forced to make concessions say uh, the 2005 uh, gaza pullout after the uh, first intifada like that you have given lots of examples it is it is it is actually a grim picture because the palestinians on the one side you have the israelis to continue who who want who want to continue the occupation on the other side the palestinians are you know trying to use all kind of tactics to break free uh, the status quo but now you just said that there is yeah uh, i agree there is a clear power imbalance uh, so in in today's context also you have a democratic administration in the united states uh, it's not trump uh, any trump is no longer in 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 the white house so do you see any kind of pressure coming from the white house or even the liberal flank of the democratic party a meaningful pressure on israel that would at least you know address the power imbalance in the conflict and put pressure on israel to make some concessions to the palestinians from the white house i do not see uh, any possibility of real pressure any the kind of pressure that would result in a, in a true change uh, to the status quo a significant change to the status quo um, from the liberal or progressive wing of the Democratic Party, um, there I see a long-term possibility of change, and, and we are seeing it happen now in front of us much more rapidly than anyone expected. Um, we're still, if we're talking about the present Congress, even a very simple bill that doesn't change 
uh, U.S. aid to Israel, but simply calls for the U.S. to examine its role in a policy like the uh, uh, detention of Palestinian uh, children. That bill, it has, you know, some support from um, uh, members of the Democratic Party, but it's still a minority. It's still a very small minority. So even something as simple as that, which still isn't touching aid, which is the really big uh, thing for, for Democrats, uh, it is not realistic in, in the present Congress and, and probably not in the next one either. Um, so it's a very long road, but the trends in the United States uh, do seem to suggest that we that that constituency is going to grow and grow and grow. And some of the people who are behind it are among the most popular politicians in America, uh, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, so, so I think that it is possible that we will reach a point at some a moment at some point in the in the distant future at which uh, the U.S. can put significant pressure on Israel in the way that it had before. But that won't happen under this uh, Biden administration. And even if there's a second term for the Biden administration, it seems very unlikely that 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 would happen. You know, in 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 this next uh, seven years. Um, it's also, I think, very important to remember the critical role of the Palestinians in bringing about the pressure. The pressure can't just come from uh, growing sympathy for Palestinians in Congress or among progressives or internationally. If you look at other places, like, for example, in, in apartheid South Africa, you know, the, the thing that drove uh, the sanctions, that drove the divestment uh, was the situation on the ground, was the overreach of the South African government in killing innocent people, which put the story in the headlines and brought it to the attention of the world, which was outraged and wanted to do something about it. Uh, and also, what was more or less an uprising in South Africa in the 1980s that made the place look ungovernable. It made it look like a bad place to be investing as a businessman. So, so the, the, um, or a business person. Uh, and, and so the, uh, the role of the people on the ground in helping to sustain and, uh, and accelerate the international pressure is critical. And, and that's why, you know, we saw it just now, the same thing occurred with this, um, uh, escalation over the last uh, month with the small war in, in, in Gaza and the um, protests over uh, Jerusalem and then the protests inside pre-67 Israel. All of that brought about a very rapid change in public opinion uh, internationally. And we saw it again in 2014, a huge change that came about as a result of that war. So these things come in bursts and they come really, they're driven more than anything by the actions of Palestinians uh, on on the ground. Um, so, so I, what I'm trying to say is that it's a very, very long road. But we do see that the trend is clear of of growing support for uh, using U.S. leverage against uh, Israel in order to bring about some kind of change and uh, reduced oppression of the Palestinians. Right, that's that's a long road, and then and and also, yeah, the pressure has to come from the Palestinians as well. Uh, Professor Ramakrishnan, the last question. So, in that sense, uh, 
when we say pressure has to come from the Palestinians as well, is Hamas playing spoil sport or Hamas is actually adding to the credible Palestinian uh, resistance? Because one argument when it comes to Israel and Palestine is that the Israelis say they are under attack because Hamas is a terrorist organization. The Americans and the European Union have also designated Hamas as a terrorist organization. So Israel is trying to build this narrative that this is uh, that the fight against whatever, the bombing on Gaza is fight against terror. So is Hamas actually weakening the greater Palestinian resistance against apartheid or is it actually adding to the uh, resistance of the Palestinians? Now, if the Palestinian voices have to be heard, all sections of the Palestinians have been up in arms against the Israeli occupation. And uh, we have to recognize the diversity of voices among the Palestinians. Um, you know, in the initial days of, uh, uh, you know, several of the Palestinian organizations, including Fatah, the PFLP, the DFLP, and so on, um, uh, they have taken the, uh, the, the armed struggle as, as their, um, uh, you know, way of doing things to, to place the Palestine issue uh, before the international community uh, and to resist um, uh, Israeli occupation. But then under Arafat's leadership, the PLO uh, you know, came to the negotiating table, took the diplomatic path, you know, um, and then we had the Intifada, first Intifada, which was uh, more or less non-violent, and so on. It is in that context that Hamas was emerging in 1987. And Hamas took, again, uh, the path of armed resistance. Um, and Palestinians have this history of, uh, uh, you know, thinking about different ideological paths and different strategic options that uh, they think um, about, uh, you know, achieving their, their, their aim and, and uh, to, to conduct the fight against Israeli occupation. Uh, so in my view, the, uh, the whole, uh, you know, point of, uh, uh, you know, talking about Hamas um, as, as something uh, which is very distinct from, uh, you know, other Palestinian entities and, uh, and uh, you know, seeing, uh, Hamas and their activities as something that is uh, delinked from the whole Palestinian struggle would be uh, would not be a good thing to do because uh, uh, you know there is already an attempt and this has been going on for uh, quite a long period of time to separate the West Bank Palestinians and and uh, uh, you know Palestinians of the Gaza Strip. Um, and, and uh, you know, some people even talked about, uh, you know, three states and things of that sort. That kind of uh, a view that divides the Palestinian identity is something which is challenged and which, which has to be challenged and which is challenged this time by, by the Palestinian identity being asserted in a big manner uh, in all uh, historical Palestine and in the diaspora uh, of the Palestinians as well. And therefore, uh, I would view uh, 
the the kind of ideological division, etc., between Fatah and Hamas, between various Palestinian organizations, as as, as something that comes up as part of uh, uh, you know what to do in a very dire uh, condition of occupation, as far as Palestinians are concerned. Um, I think we have to leave uh, what kind of strategy they have to adopt, what kind of uh, ideology the Palestinians have to follow. It's up to them. But, uh, you know, this whole narrative of, uh, you know, seeing the Palestinians as a divided bloc, they may have differences, obviously, but I, I don't think that on the basic question of uh, uh, you know, liberating Palestine, the question of uh, an independent Palestinian state. Uh, Palestinians are united, at least on, on, on that question, and which is the core of the Palestine question. Yeah, um, the basic question is the liberation of Palestine or, uh, or crea creation of an independent Palestine. On that note, we will wrap it up. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks, Nathan. Thanks, Professor Ramakrishnan, for joining Parley. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you.